Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Right now on Fast, shares of First Republic tumbling, deposits at the regional bank plunging by over 40% in Q1, and now they plan to lay off close to a quarter of their employees in Q2. We'll go inside the numbers straight ahead. Plus, a Beijing ban, new reports that China may stop U.S. chipmaker Micron from selling its chips on the mainland. The U.S., for its part, asking neighboring countries not to help China if it needs more chips. Is this just the start of a bigger trade fight to come? And later, why investors keep hanging up on AT&T? Burgers, fries, and options ahead of Mickey D's results, and new cell phone data painting a dire picture for one of California's most important cities. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq Market Site. Full house here on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Steve Grasso, Bono and Eisen, and Dan Nathan. We start off with an earnings alert on First Republic. Shares dropping sharply despite a top of a top and bottom line beat. Investors spooked by the massive drop in deposits in Q1. They fell over 40%. This even after the bank got a $30 billion lifeline from a number of the country's largest banks. First Republic also saying it is planning to lay off up to a quarter of its workforce in the second quarter. Um, remember during the day, it was up 12% or so. So the markets giveth and taketh away. They're taking it away right now, Tim. Yeah, then they, you know, going down seems to be more painful on percentage terms, even though going up actually is more rewarding at, on a relative basis. But this deposit number is really a bad number. Um, again, the street was calling for 137 billion. You know, we, we see where they came in. So, uh, you know, we need to hear from the call what they're going to do. Cost cutting is is what I think people actually believe the CEO can do and, and certainly what they're going to have to do. But it's going to get back to really what's what's the level on deposit rates that can still be profitable for this bank? And what are they going to have to pay as a premium over some of their regional peers? Um, and then ultimately, where are they with their business model? Because I don't think, at least right now, and some of the guides we have, and I know we're going to have a great discussion uh, about this with a banking analyst who doesn't think they're necessarily going out of business, um, that they have options. But their core model is something that I think right now is really in question. And that's that's really where we are. I mean, if it's a business in part built by deposits that are above FDIC insurance, I don't know if those days are ever going to come back. The good news, though, is they did say that outflows did stabilize from March 27th up until basically April 21st, I think, is the date. So stabilization in the most recent days, Dan, but still not good enough. For yeah, I mean, listen, that was one of the intents of, of kind of the feds coming in, doing what they did in the throes of that crisis. Really, they had to st- like make sure this didn't become systemic. And if you look, we've been talking about FRC. Look at it. It's just been flatlined, you know what I mean, at that level for weeks and weeks. If we looked at the KRE, the regional bank index, it was the same thing. You know, it struck me today as we were thinking about how we were going to cover this story, especially on a day that was already up um, in to the print here. Look at the BKX. I'm going to pull that up. So that's the, the banking index that is equal weight, right? We talk about the XLF a lot. We know that Berkshire is the largest holding there, over 12%. Not a great indication of the banks. Look at the BKX, how little rally it has had, especially given what we've seen by the participants of the large money center banks. So it just struck me a little bit, especially over the weekend. I don't know if you saw the Wall Street uh, Journal article about the, the banking mess, if it's over or not or whatever. The BKX has not made a lot of progress. It really feels like there's other shoes to drop. Yeah, KRE too. Um, let's get some more details on the quarter. Uh, the conference call is about a half hour in. CNBC.com banking reporter Hugh Son has been listening into the call. Hugh, what are we learning so far? 
Hey, Millicent, uh, it, it's great to be with you. You know, um, the CEO of First Republic made what was probably the most important conference call uh, in the 40-year history of First Republic in about 12 minutes, and there was no Q&A. So it was, in a sense, it was very easy to take in. However, it was painfully brief. Uh, you know, the, the big news and the portrait that CEO Mike Roffler wanted to portray was one of stabilization. So, you know, you saw, obviously, the deposits fell by about 41% to 140 billion, more or less. Um, that is, however, below the, you know, below the, uh, the analyst estimate. And on top of that, you know, they basically say that since the end of the quarter in the past three weeks, they've only fell about 1.7% further. So if the image is stabilizing at First Republic. However, you know, what are they left with, uh, you know, is one of the questions. Uh, a couple more points of um, sort of action here. You know, they're cutting up to 25% of their employees. It's a very deep cut. This is, obviously, they've talked about suspending dividends, cutting executive compensation, closing some offices and reining in real estate footprint. Um, so really, these are the steps of, you know, of a company that's under some considerable duress. Um, another thing they pointed out is they've retained nearly 90% of their financial advisors in their wealth, man wealth management division. Um, I guess that's another way of saying that they've lost about 10% of their advisors, uh, you know, in, in the uh, post-SVB. Um, and so, yeah, look, that's, that's sort of the high, high notes from this 12-minute call, Melissa. 12 minutes, Hugh, and that's it? No Q&A. <laughs> no Q&A. Wow. Unprecedented. Hussan, thanks for keeping us posted on this. Um, Tim had mentioned, you know, at what cost the deposits. We know that in the days uh, following the initial blowups in the, in the banking sector, we got ads uh, for five plus sure percent did. CDs from First Republic. I mean, these things, are, <laughs> it's not going to be able to be easy to keep up with these sorts of payments just to keep deposits stable and stable, meaning, as Hugh mentioned, down one percent in the past three weeks. Well, it's not just about keeping the deposits up. It's also about the profitability of those said deposits. And I think that's the point that you're getting at. If you're having to pay four and a half, five percent just to retain and, pre and prevent outflows, I think it puts you in a bit of a challenging position. There is one positive takeaway that, that Hugh mentioned, which is the, the assets under custody and the, um, the advisor retention. I would have expected to see perhaps a lot. That was a real area of focus for them, bringing in talent. They, they cater to high net worth individuals. And I think going out and making all of those, all of the, uh, you know, all of those efforts to acquire talent only to have it run out of the door. So I do think that is a, an incremental positive takeaway that they're at least able to retain those high net worth individuals. And I think the biggest takeaway for me, well, this feels like we're rehashing it. We went through this semi-crisis already. We were worried about the, the floor falling out, the sky falling down, whatever you want to use there. JP Morgan did just fine. Large money center banks did just fine. We had to hear from these regional banks. I think we knew this was not going to be good. This was going to be terrible. But we've already lived it. It's already over. So I don't know if it's going to have a huge effect on the overall market tomorrow. I think it's not good for the regionals. But it's very easy to transfer your deposit from a bank from one to another these days. So I think crisis, quote unquote, averted for now for the overall market. I, do you feel better knowing First Republic's results um, in a 12-minute conference call where there were no questions answered? No, the, the bank's not down 90% or close to it because they're less profitable. Okay, um, this isn't a story uh, because this was a story of one of the great growth stories in the regional banking. They had a 20 percent uh, CAGR in terms of what they were doing when most other banks were growing 2 to 5 percent. Um, 
wouldn't be down where it is here. There, there'd be plenty of people that would be willing to say, okay, it doesn't need to grow as fast. And I understand a derating multiple. I think, and, and this is what Dan's referring to in the KRE. I mean, we just, we just don't know. And, and we still haven't gotten to an environment where some of the credit velocity has, has picked up. And so um, I, I, there are clearly trades in here. There are cl- clearly, yeah, just, but I, 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 you know, I'm just not ready to make that Just call. Just before, just before, because I don't want to get away. I don't feel better about seeing the results. What I'm saying is the market needed to see them just to see how bad it really was. But I think the market has already digested all of this. Mm-hmm. All right, so a couple things. Let's uh, like extrapolate it to the economy here, because I think this is really important. And, and, and so in this piece I, I referenced by the Wall Street Journal, why the banking mess isn't over, um, they were quoting a bunch of Goldman Sachs data, and I thought it was interesting, because it said for every 10% of lesser profitability the that these banks have, they're contracting 2% in loan growth. And that's like, let, let, so let's think about that, okay? So we're seeing this across regional banks. We're going to see it across. We know that some of the major banks have tightened up their standards, especially even as they brought in more deposits. I think that is probably, and we've been talking about what's on the other side of this crisis, and I really do think that. So what does that mean for the contraction in the economy? The other thing is, this headline, they're going to cut their headcount by 20 to 25 percent in the second quarter alone. And so might we see, remember that uh, episode we had a few weeks ago when I told you it's a certainty there's going to be less bankers in America at the end of this year than the start of this year. We're going to see further consolidation. We'll probably see further banks close. And that just doesn't mean, that doesn't bode well for these people finding the similar sorts of job. So I just think that what that means for consumer spending also, we saw some of the data in and around the SVB failure and what that meant for consumer data. So these are the, like, the palpitations that I think are going to continue until we have some sort of clarity about when this ends. Let's dig deeper into the results with Christopher Marinak, Director of Research at Janney Montgomery. Scott, Chris, great to have you with us. Thank you, Michelle. Good to be here. It's Melissa. That's okay, though. Hey, I get that all the time. Sorry um, about that. No problem. Do you, how do you extract? You don't cover First Republic yourself, your firm does. And so I'm wondering how how you see First Republic's results as sort of um, any sort of sign for for some of the banks that you do cover. So clearly it was a disappointment on the deposits. Uh, We thought that there would be 40 or 45 billion decline, not 72. Uh, I think that the cost cutting has to happen immediately, which they talked about. The, The question is, can they really pivot from being a growth company to now being a one focused on expenses and profitability? We're not sure it's in their DNA, but they're going to have to. I mean, for survivability, they have to make this change. Um, I thought it was disappointing that there wasn't Q&A. I think we needed to get that therapy on the call, but it didn't happen. So now we have to ask the company to give us, if not weekly, perhaps biweekly updates about what's happening with the balance sheet. And really, the shrinking of the balance sheet is now the next critical step. What do you think is the next chapter for First Republic? I mean, what options do you think it has on the table? Dozens of banks have had a look at this thing. Nothing has happened so far. I don't know if a deal could possibly be in the works here. Does it need to raise capital somehow? Would that be dilute? I mean, what are some of the next things that you're looking for here? I think shrinking the balance sheet. They have to shrink the assets. They have to constitute themselves as a much smaller company. You know, the ratio that I hang my hat on is that 51% of the funding is debt. And so that really is not a good number. The average for large cap banks is 14 today. So that's way out of whack. They have to shrink and they have mm-hmm. to you know, reduce profitability. Clearly, stock is telling you that. But I think they have to actually execute on that so they can be a much smaller company and then revisit kind of where they go strategically. Um, it's a hard pill to swallow. It's really friendly fire from uh, what happened with SVB. But for them, it is what it is. It's the one company that really has been singled out. I think the rest of the industry has sidestepped this issue. 
And I think this is the one that we needed to get clarity on. So now we know how bad it is uh, to the point made earlier. And, and now they have to do the heavy lifting of shrinking the balance sheet and uh, you know, revisiting their size and structure with much lower profits. Kurt, uh, I mean, Chris, sorry. Um, so, uh, the, the, the question I have, though, is where do Fed funds need to settle in? Where, where, where do they need to settle in? And can we read this through other regional banks? Because we are talking about an element of, of really where can they actually be profitable in what was a significant part of their business. I'm just curious. Say we have Fed funds at 5% for 12 months. Um, where does the deposit rate have to top out at? Oh, for them, I think, you know, their total funding was a little bit less than 3%. I think they need to get, you know, probably to three and a quarter, three and a half and stop there. Um, I'm sure incrementally they're paying five today, so they're below water. For the whole industry, we generally see about 220 to 240 point spread between where Fed funds finishes and where banks cost of funds are. That's a way to think about it for the industry. First Republic is clearly going to be higher. They already are higher uh, by a country mile. So they have to change gears and kind of stop paying as, as high rates. But again, that goes back to shrinking the balance sheet. If they shrink the balance sheet, they can pay down their funding uh, on borrowings and really reconstitute themselves as a much smaller company. They, they most likely have to shrink by at least half, but most likely two thirds. Chris, if we have you back on in nine months or so, 12 months, are we still going to be talking about First Republic as a publicly traded entity? I think we will. You know, Jim Herbert is is very strong as a CEO. I think he has built this company from the ground up for many years. He took it out uh, from uh, from Merrill and B of A a long time ago. I think he's got the will to do it. It's just going to be hard. It's not going to be a growth company. It's going to have to focus on profitability. But I would not count. I would not count Jim out. Uh, but what multiple do you put? What multiple would you put on this new First Republic? I mean, compared so to all I mean, the other banking options that that there are out there at this point. So I start with the price to tangible book. I think it's going to be at a deep discount for a while. Uh, so 50 to 60 percent of tangible book is a place to start. And I think as you reconstitute the earnings, most likely a five or six multiple is where I think we sit. So it definitely is a uh, is, is a low valuation for a while until they can show. That's why I think this uh, biweekly or weekly announcements of where they are with the balance sheet, with profitability, et cetera, is a critical step. They're going to have to be an exception and sort of make up some new disclosure rules about how often they communicate. But I think it's going to be worth their while to do so. So you said a multiple about five. We have a screen up here, the forward P.E. being about 13, including the decline that we're seeing in the after hours. So it, it needs to be more than cut in half from here. I, unfortunately, and, and that's yeah. where book value, I think, can, can help and perhaps be a little bit of a, of a safety valve. Uh, mm -hmm. But again, I don't think we know what the real numbers are. I think the real earnings is a lot less than what has been in the screens um, here in recent days. All right. Chris, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Christopher Marinak, Jenny Montgomery. All right. So the forward multiple needs to be cut by more than half. And there's still a lot that we do not know when it comes to the earnings power. Is this a story you want to be part of? Uh, it's not, unfortunately. Not yet. Let me not rule it out. Yeah. Like I, th there is a, I still think there's some real existential risk here. Dan raised two points earlier, and I'm going to add two more. What still has not fallen out is credit. And one thing, you, he, uh, Chris had a nice chart here. We talked about net interest margin, cost of deposits, hold of maturity, and available for sale. And if you kind of time series that data out, it brings to the front. Are we really going to have a situation where there's going to be more stringent controls over available for sale versus hold to maturity? And I think that leads to the credit tightening mm -hmm. and shrinking of loan growth and all of those things. That's a dance point, I think, kind of.
push us over that proverbial edge. All right, let's get to the markets now in broader technology. Uh, tomorrow starts a very big week for the sector. Alphabet and Microsoft report after the bell. Then later in the week, it's Meta and Amazon. Alphabet up less than a percent today, while Microsoft fell almost 2%. There are so many things we'll be looking for, the health of the ad industry, the health of enterprise spending, cloud, Grasso. Yeah, I mean, all, all that stuff is 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 out there. The question, though, is doesn't it feel like this year that Microsoft really ate Google's lunch? It, it, to me, at least, it does. They ate everybody's but, lunch. But, but, but um, Google is outperforming on a year-to-date basis Microsoft's. I was, I was shocked to look at those numbers because you think, oh, my gosh, they're under the weight of, of Microsoft right now. Microsoft looks like it has to roll over to me. Google looks like they have to prove themselves. And I don't know how much... Google is going to lose in ad revenue and have to build up in in, uh, funding their AI. So for me, I think that both of them probably need to take a little bit step back. Mm -hmm. And if they do, the overall market rolls too. I, to me, it's it's so much about cloud, uh, how penetrated we are, and and then you know really what's the spend going in enterprise, uh, at least in the near term. Uh, I, it, if you look at the charts, I just want to point out some of the stuff that that I think we've talked about a lot, but that Microsoft and Apple since uh, in over the last four months have outperformed the S and P. So a relative basis outperformance of 23 percent, both of them right back up to resistance. And I think we may or may not have a chart on this. So yeah, there's there's Apple uh, essentially net worth relative or just the performance relative to the S&P over the last couple of years, you can see we're right up at that level where it's been running into resistance. And again, it's a 23% move in, in the last four months. I don't think we're ever going to see Apple's value relative to the S&P this high ever again. And that's, you know, mm. you can, you can, I can never be wrong in this because we will never know when never again is. But I think we have an, <laughs> a, a, a backdrop of, of the setup here that doesn't make me feel great about what big cap can do. And the charts are telling me that as well. Yeah, so the setup for Microsoft is particularly bad. If you think about what we know and just in the last couple of weeks, that CDW pre-announcement is not good for Microsoft. If you think about um, just all the hype that is built into this story right now because of um, AI, there's not too many other large cap companies we've seen that. I know we talked a little bit um, about um, NVIDIA, that PC data that we saw from IDC a couple yeah. weeks um, is not particularly great. So to me, you know, I say to myself, Stock's at the top end of the range here. It's trading about 30 times. Um, it's had you know, a, a really good run based on some things that it really becomes a bit of a show-me story here. And I just think that you're going to have a better opportunity to buy this thing probably down 10% in the next couple weeks or possibly you know, uh, possibly lower. But um, to me, I think the valuation reset probably needs to happen a couple turns here. All those points aside, I still think there is a, an aspect of these names where they're they're still perceived as being safety. And if we're gonna, we just shot back to that, to that FRC situation where there's so much uncertainty, so many things that are unknown, and it kind of gives you a, a sense of jitteriness, particularly when you have an analyst essentially calling for the price target to be essentially 50% of where it is right now. So I still do think there is a psychological safety net that these companies still offer, and that might lead them to be a slightly- That, that might be uh, the biggest point out of all the stuff that we brought up, because if you look at when SVB collapsed, all of them took off. And then the first week of April, all the charts sort of flattened out on large cap tech. 
that might be the, the biggest takeaway is, is was that the reason why but, they got padded for but, the sense of safety? The only thing I'll say is safety is very crowded right here. It's crowded in a very I agree. small well, group of names. Right. If you look at the NASDAQ, I don't know if they can pull up the NDX. I mean, it's flatlined this whole month at 13,000. You know what I mean? So if there is one of these companies that are perceived safety that basically do like, like, like have some sort of warning about enterprise spending or something like that. And then it's not the, the cloud stuff is also really interesting because it's not just big enterprises. It's also we'll get a look into small, medium businesses, yeah. too. So um, to me, I just think there's probably one of these lurking out there that are going to basically say in this rate environment. Also, we're going to hear higher for longer, even if the Fed pauses at their May 3rd meeting. That's something that should weigh on valuations, too. And all of these companies are expensive right now. Coming up, a pricing pop. Coca-Cola reporting strong results as the soda maker passes costs onto the consumer. What the pricing power will mean for the stock straight ahead. But first, a semi-struggle for Micron. Shares under pressure as reports of a ban in China come into focus. How U.S.-China relations tensions are impacting the chip space. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome back to Fast Money. Micron shares dropping today in reports that China could ban the U.S. chipmaker from selling its semiconductors into the country. This move would be a major retaliation by Beijing. And it comes after the CHIPS Act barred American companies from investing more in China while getting new U.S. funding. Last year, revenue from China made up 25% of Micron's revenue. Um, how scared should we be of this? I, I think, look, Micron is, is such a cyclical trade on some level within the chip space. We kind of know what they do. We know it's about inventory and DRAM pricing. And, 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 and if you look at the chart, it kind of tells you about that. And on some level, maybe we've priced through a lot of bad stuff. We have no idea. Uh, and then when the White House is reaching out to Samsung, or at least there's a reference, yeah, that, that they have actually reached out to Samsung, or at least South Korea, to urge their chip makers not to make up the market gap in China if, in fact, Micron is banned. I mean, it's just, it's just interesting because we've been talking about things. I mean, how about going all the way back to Huawei? Thinking about the things that the U.S. has done to hardware companies or semiconductor companies uh, in that part of the world. And, and it, it, should they be surprised? No. So we've, we've, we've cautioned about the broader impact, not just even in the tech sector, but consumer products. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is getting dialed up. I mean, if you talk to folks who pre-pandemic used to go to China a lot for business, they're not going anymore. And, and you bring up the situation with Huawei. That was like the Huawei CFO who was detained in North America. You know what I mean? For whatever reasons that we deemed at the time. I don't even remember. I, I mean, it was Imagine something. they did that to, to, to you know, Tim Cook or someone senior from Apple. I mean, it just it would be significant. And yeah. I mean, I, listen, Tim Cook, Elon. I mean, those guys are fine. They're made guys, as, as, as uh, some of you guys might say. So is you know Jack I mean? Ma. Well, 
Right. But Great I point. think what I mean, they do to their own point. people and, and have done, you know, like right. is, is reason enough to say, you know what, I'm not bringing my smartphone when I'm going over there. Or I'm not doing that sort of thing. So to me, um, yeah, I, I think it's going to be I think we are in the midst of a very bipolar world. It's a very hot economic war that doesn't really appear to get any cooler anytime soon. I mean, if Beijing did this, I think this would probably reaccelerate reshoring, the reshoring movement. Right. Because if you're if you're a a Dell or an Apple computer and you manufacture over there, you no longer can get those chips from Micron in China. So what do you do? And if South Korea is not going to step in and fill the gap, all of a sudden you can't make your product. So what do you do? You have to reach, you have to find other places to make your product because you can't live with that risk anymore. But it's good for Samsung. Let's be clear. Oh, I that's mean, why this shares is, are rallying. Yeah. And, and, and yet they even reported some numbers that weren't great. So um, it's very inflationary, too. I mean, you know, we talk about all the yeah. things that are going on and that you can't get away from it. Took the words right out of my mouth. It seems like every time we, we try to get on the right side of this trade, there is something. And it just shows how it's, out, how it's just drastically out of our control here. To your point earlier about am I concerned, certainly show me a company where 25% of its revenue is essentially exactly. instantaneously <laughs> wiped out and they find another way to, to pivot that quickly. The, the last point I'll say is this actually might be the rallying cry for Intel. This might be the thing that actually rescues them from themselves. I think if you if you look at NVIDIA, my takeaway is the entire space, people are going to start to analyze, do I have enough profits where I made my profits? And NVIDIA is up 85% year to date. Do people just arbitrarily or just across the board just get smaller in chips? Let's see if that happens off of the, on the back of this news. All right. There's a lot more Fast Money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Pricing the pop. Coca-Cola's results staying nice and bubbly as costs get passed on to customers. But when will the price hikes flatten the soda surge? More on the FizzBiz next. Plus, a decade of dullness. Bull or bear, you'll want to hear this call. Why our next guest says the boring market could be a beautiful place to invest. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome back to Fast Money. Pricing power, a big driver for Coca-Cola's earnings beat today. The company raised prices 11% in the first quarter, while their volumes only went up 3%. Shares end of the day relatively flat. Here's what CEO James Quincy told Squawk on the Street about where prices are heading from here. Overall, we see uh, moderation. We see the input costs moderating as we go through the year, uh, wages moderating as we go through the year, the kind of cost of media moderating. And in tandem, we'll see our own pricing moderating uh, as, as we both cycle last year's strong price increases and the marketplace, uh, particularly in some of the developed uh, economies, starts to go back to less off-cycle price increases. Well, that's good news. Coke is not the only consumer company profiting off of rising prices. We heard a similar story last week over at P&G. Um, there was strength, finally, in soda and water, Tim. <laughs> well, it, it, 
Coke is one of these companies that's got a brand that has pricing power, and you've seen this with more luxury brands, and, and they've, they've crushed it. And you've seen this in the spirits world, where the Diageos of the world. So their gross margins uh, were up 123 basis points year over year, which was significantly above expectations. You heard the CEO you know, put a, a, a prudent outlook there, which talks about, hey, things aren't going to be this good for this long. But, but if, if you think about what higher grocery prices have meant for people like Walmart, it's exactly what's going on here. I'll just say that the input costs are coming down. If you look at commodities, and they're not related to making of Coke, but lumber prices are like three-year lows. Wheat prices are at three-year lows. Transportation costs are coming down. And at some point as a consumer, you, you, know, you go to the grocery store, and it's like, are you serious? Coke's up 20% or 25% over a couple of years. I went to go buy beer. And yeah, I went to go buy some beer over the weekend. It's I mean, okay to beers. I, I, I know. <laughs> but I, mean, I, love, and I, drink, I drink Coors Light for, for reasons that probably people don't want to know about, which means just that it's like boat water. But, it, you know, a six, a 12 pack is $14.99 in the supermarket. It was $11.99 pre-COVID. And Dan. you drank I the mean, full 12? Well, I mean, it took, let's, it took let's, some time. Let's sidebar I mean, those there. reasons. You know, I mean, let, um, one thing that's really interesting about Staples, um, you know, they were not trading well at February when, when the market was at the all-time highs. It was YOLO time. Remember in the market, and it was just like kind of anything that got killed in 2022, you were buying and staples were down. So today, if you think about what Tim just said about the pricing power of some of these brands, if you look at the XLP, the ETF that tracks consumer staples, it's trading almost right back at those levels. You could say, okay, well, so is the S&P 500 uh, back towards those levels. But the fact is, here's a company, and the narrative is that inflation is coming down. They have pricing power. They're doing it. Even with growth where it is at low single digits, valuations seem um, stressed. It's making all the cases of why you own staples when you're worried about things. Coming up, we're watching shares of Cleveland Cliffs and Whirlpool both names on the move after reporting results. The details of those quarters next, plus right back where we started from. Stiefel's Barry Bannister lays out why the next decade will see a sideways S&P. But that could be a trader's dream come true. More on that call when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Another check in the markets today. Stocks closing mixed as investors brace for big tech earnings. The Dow jumping 66 points, the S&P up about a tenth of a percent, and the Nasdaq ending in the red down three-tenths of a percent. And some after-hours action in shares of Cleveland Cliffs and Whirlpool. Both companies reporting beats on the top and the bottom lines. Cleveland Cliffs down 2%, Whirlpool up three and a third. Our next guest expects a sideways trading range for the next 10 years. And he calls it a trader's dream. Let's bring in Barry Bannister, uh, Stiefel Chief Equity Strategist Barry, great to have you with us. Um, it's hard enough to call a year, but you're calling a decade, and you're calling it flat. <laughs> why? Why are you doing that? We, we we've been talking about this since 2019. You know, the market uh, peaked a uh, couple days into about mid March of 2020 with COVID. Um, we've made progress since then, and we came right back down, and then back up on a bounce. I think it's easier to focus on the current year, which a lot of our research does, and then also on the long term, five to 10 years out, and leave the middle to to just be worked out. Um, When you look at it, the price earnings multiple from December 2021 is going to come down by about half. The earnings should just about more than double. And so you'll end up with a flat market, much like 2000 to 2013, or 1969 to 1982, or 1937 to 1946. I mean, I can go back quite a long time. You end up with these flat, sideways, range-bound markets. So, Barry, when you look at it, though, there's so many geopolitical possibilities that used to be outliers. They're not outliers anymore. There's so much happening inside this country. So I get that in 10 years, 
It could be sideways. Do you see major events happening short term? Yeah, back in October of 2022, uh, just about a week and a half after the lows, we said that we would be up 500 points by April, um, and about 85% of that move is done. So the easy money is behind us. The hard money is now. Uh, we've been saying that there's going to have to be avoidance of a recession, uh, and uh, that would have to be pushed back. And it looks like that is pushed back, but uh, a classical recession by the end of the year is possible. Um, and as far as longer term, yeah, the geopolitical risk surrounding oil, which is really the key to inflation as much as labor, uh, that is a very big issue long term. The dollar over the very long term is going to be a, as a store of value is going to be under some pressure. And we've got this thing called fiscal dominance, where the Fed loses relative power to the big spending treasury and eventually, you know, the populists vote for their own benefits and that has to be funded with debt. It makes it a lot harder for interest rates to stay very low. And that's what stocks need to stay very high. Barry, this is Bono and thanks so much for your time. Uh, so reading your report, it would seem to imply that that being that we're going to be flat or it's reported that we're going to be flat over the next decade or so, the buy and hold uh, low cost, low fee index strategy likely is not going to perform well. Uh, so uh, it sounds like one, you'd be a proponent of active management during this period of time. My question is, what type of strategies do you think perform best in the environment that you foresee over the next decade? Yeah, well, we definitely know how these environments shake out. They tend to be slightly more inflationary. Uh, they tend to feature a weaker dollar. Uh, they uh, tend to have a compression of P.E. ratios. The price earnings multiple comes down. So those would argue for international value, small cap uh, as an overweight and growth over the long term as an underweight in your portfolio. So. Uh, we all know what value is. That's everything from these beaten up banks to uh, energy when it resurges to industrials and basic materials. And we know what small cap is. Uh, and the international, it could be a mix of Europe and uh, emerging markets. Barry, great to get your thoughts. Thank you. Thank Barry you. Barry Bannister of Stiefel. All right. So long term outlook um, and all the power to them. It, makes sense in many ways. I would just say this, if I'm looking at small caps, which you mentioned a couple times that you want to be overweight in that environment, I do not think you want to be overweight small caps right here. So I saw David Rosenberg mention this morning, there's a death cross happening in the Russell 2000. Um, if you look at the underperformance relative to the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ, it just really feels like it wants to crack here. And all the things that we talked about at the top of the show, which well, listen, we know there's a lot of like small cap financials that are in this index or whatever. But um, if you go back to November uh, 8th, of 2021, um, that's when the Russell 2000 topped out. And that was a month before basically the NASDAQ did, and it was two months before the S&P 500 did. So I'd keep a close eye on the Russell here. I really think it could be a leading indicator for the larger cap indices. The, so just, you know, the top five NASDAQ names are 45% of the NASDAQ. It's what I said before. That's just not going to happen. And international is going to continue to, uh, I think, it finally relative uh, underperformance for more than a decade. I mean, we've, we've had this mean reversion. I think we've just started that. All right, coming up, communication breakdown. AT&T still reeling from its post-earnings plunge, so is it time to hang up on this name? We'll dig into that trade next. Plus, McDonald's on deck to report tomorrow. Shares hover near all-time highs. How are options traders placing their orders? The details when Fast Money returns. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. AT&T dropping nearly 4% today, now down more than 11% since they reported earnings last week. Our next guest has had a $17 price target on T dating to last August. Let's bring in Moffitt Nathanson's co-founder, Craig Moffitt. Craig, great to have you with us. Um, you're so close to your price target, so uh, congrats on a good call. In terms of what has happened, though, since earnings, what do you think finally dawned on investors? What because from what I read when, the, when they first reported, everything was sort of fine. I mean, they stuck to guidance. You know, the business is not growing, but it, there was no reason for the stock to decline this much. Well, yes and no. Um, it, and first of all, hi, Melissa. It's good to be back. Um, so I, I guess a couple of things. The first thing I would say is, um, is and, the, and what obviously struck people, was free cash flow was a billion dollars. I mean, this is a company with a $16 billion target for free cash flow for the year. And while admittedly some of the miss was the expectations were around $3 billion for the quarter, so it came in about two-thirds light, um, it, some of the explanations are reasonable, some timing of CapEx, some timing of, of uh, receivables and, and, and particularly payables. Um, but it certainly puts them behind the eight ball for the full year on free cash flow. And look, that's the only reason to own this stock is the dividend, right? I mean, they're paying a $7 billion dividend and and they generated a billion dollars in the first quarter of free cash flow. So that's alarming on its face. There are bigger strategic issues here, though. That's the real problem. I'm sorry, Craig. Hey, it's, it's Tim Seymour. Thank you for joining us. And boy, I, I wish I had listened to you probably not just in the last year, but maybe in one of the last couple of years. And, and you've defined in your note uh, that the wireless game is becoming a zero-sum game and, and it's going to come down to competitive advantages. Please articulate what those are for AT&T at this point. And, and, and I think we know what they are for T-Mobile and, and they've crushed it. But, but please, you know, please examine that. Yeah, Tim, I'll tell you, 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 you mentioned a couple of years. I started covering this name in 2006. The stock is below where it was when I started covering it in 2006. Right. So this is not a stock with a track record of a lot of shareholder value creation. Um, and the struggle is, look, Verizon differentiated itself with, with consumers and businesses for years with a best network uh, value proposition. T-Mobile differentiated itself with best price proposition, and now arguably it has best price and best value um, or best network. It's never been entirely clear what AT&T's value proposition was in the first place, um, other than we give away phones to almost anybody. Um, it doesn't have to be a premium price plan in order to qualify for a free phone. Um, that's expensive business, right? They started resubsidizing phones after the subsidy model had gone away um, at tremendous cost to free cash flow and, uh, and, and ARPU. Um, and they still haven't gotten out of that trap because they just really don't have a terribly compelling customer value proposition. So at, at essence, the real problem is you start from um, what they're selling customers is arguably just overpriced relative to what it is. And now you have this additional problem that the industry growth rate is really finally starting to decelerate and fall back down toward a much more sustainable growth rate that is probably at the, reasonably close to the population growth rate. And then layer one more piece on this, and that's that the cable industry is now pricing wireless way below where the wireless players are. Um, they're using Verizon's network, so the network is just as good. The prices are lower. 
and they're taking more and more market share. So what's left for the incumbents to fight over is is getting much, much smaller. Craig, thanks so much for joining us. Price target 17. We're just a couple percent away from that. Appreciate your time. All right. So you said you would wish you listened to Craig, mainly because you are a shareholder. Yeah, I'm also a shareholder of T-Mobile and I'm a customer of T-Mobile. And I'm really happy about that. By the way, people used to malign me for being a T-Mobile customer, but it's been great. Oh, that's say it. that. Nah, okay. I mean, what more can I say? I've been long AT and T, but I've been long G. Six G. Get ready for it. This is what we're going to hear. You know, we 6G. heard for we heard for years like five so G was going to be has up. to be on yeah. for these guys. Yeah, again. it's not great if you're if you're T and you have all that debt. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. All right, uh, let's get to options action here. McDonald's is on deck. Shares are ticking higher in a busy day for restaurant stocks. The Golden Arch is reporting before the bell tomorrow. One options trader is betting Mickey D's isn't looking so tasty right now. Mike Co has the action. <laughs> Although yeah, so Mike thinks it's very tasty because you hide wrappers from your from your wife, as we learn on Options Action on Friday. <laughs> oh, <laughs> not every day, not every day, but you know, know an egg McMuffin <laughs> before work sometimes is just a bit too appealing to resist. Let's be honest. Okay, so McDonald's, which is always one of the busier restaurant stocks in terms of options trading, traded three times its average daily options volume today. Puts did, as you indicated, slightly outpace calls on the busiest puts were the 280 strike puts that expire at the end of this week. We saw 3,200 of those trading for a little over a half a buck a share. And right now, the options market is implying a move of about 2.5% higher or lower by week's end. But the buyer of those puts clearly believes that it is lower by the end of the week for this stock. Bonwin, do you like McDonald's, a stock? I, I do, but I don't mind buying the puts here. They're relatively cheap. They're short dated. And if you get something that you don't like out of earnings, it probably protects something that you have made multiples of the two and a half percent move that you're that you're uh, paying for with the puts. McDonald's, if you look at the chart, it's figured out how to navigate a great economy and a terrible economy over the years. Look at where the chart is right now. It's very hard to, to place your bets against this name. I feel like you might go to a drive-in, Tim, have a wrapper, stick I have nothing to hide, all right? I mean, let's be clear. And that, that, that uh, what's the, the, the Oreo, like, ice cream? Uh, it's not a flurry. Why don't you tell us? The flurry. McFlurry. The, the McFlurry. No, it's great. And, and thank goodness for Happy Meals because my son wouldn't eat otherwise. We're trying to get him. To, I know that's, I won't say anything about their chicken, but fortunately that's where his protein is coming from. I know I'm probably going to get in trouble for that. But, again, we're not hiding from that. You own McDonald's. Yes. You think it's fine here? <laughs> I, I, no, I think it's really expensive. And in fact, okay. I've been selling upside calls and I'm almost flat in the position. All right. Mike, thanks. Mike Coe. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, if you are going to San Francisco, be sure to bring a couple of friends. New reports showing cities could still be facing major problems post-pandemic. The implications on retail, restaurants, and more. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. A new report from Apollo showing cell phone activity in many of America's major cities is still severely depressed from pre-pandemic levels. New York is at 74% of its pre-COVID levels, Chicago at 50%, and San Francisco just 31% of what it was before the pandemic. Think of the impact. Commercial real estate, restaurants, retail, and more. I mean, 31%. Part of it could just be, you know, cord cutting, cost cutting, downsizing, et cetera. But part of it is just you're not going back to that city and think of the implications. I, I, I can't uh, 
go into the analysis there because I don't really know what the correlation really is to population outflow and cell phone usage. I think there's there's all of us that try to use our cell phone a little bit less every day. It's harder to do. Uh, I don't think there's any denying that there's been and it, much in the way that COVID accelerated trends that were already happening. We were already seeing uh, people leaving urban areas and moving to more remote and regional parts of the country. I think that's going to continue <laughs> to happen. But, you know, I mean, like the front page of The New York Post is not what's going on in New York City. And, and, and I think I, you know, we, we deal with this all the time if we live here. In other words, I think sometimes things uh, sound like they are worse than they are. I mean, look, New York has got its issues, but I, I think life feels very much like pre-COVID. Yeah. And there are a lot of, I mean, sort of trades, if you will, if you follow these sort of migration patterns which we've seen in the past, you see population outflows of, of these sorts of cities. You see it going to Texas and Florida. That's where you see those regional banks, for instance, doing better because they're attracting more deposits and making more loans just because of the influx of businesses and people. And you also have lower taxes. So people go to lower tax states. They go to safer cities. So there's a but but I think Tim started off the the right way. I don't really know all of the analysis that went into this. So it's hard to sort of cherry pick where where we're at with this. But I think pandemic has changed a lot. Yeah. People want a better quality of life. And I don't know if they get that from the cities the way they used to. Here's one thing that's shocking about that data. Um, Zoom today made a new 52 week low. Briefly, down 90% from its all-time highs. When you think about some of these trends and some of the things that we thought would stick around, and, and you were probably on a Zoom today. No, I mean, I mean, like, no, I, like if you think about where Zoom, right. it's still very much part of the fabric. But, but it's a pretty shocking sort of stat when you just think about like some of the behavior that we had, some of the behavior that we've adopted, some of the things that we heard last week over the last week or so from some of the airlines and what they had to say about business travel. So it's just kind of interesting. Listen, people look at us all the time to try to demystify some of the stuff that's going on in the markets. I'll tell you that this stock has never been cheaper and it's about as embedded as it's been in most of our lives in the normal time frame it's going to be around and the stock market's saying no bueno the intraday though on zoom today was weird did you see that yeah the intraday just like spiked higher midday i don't know i don't know what's going on there um coming up next final trades for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. So Intel, we talked about it. Buy one, I think, said it bodes well, some of this chip stuff. I, I think if you look at Intel, it's had about an 11% 12 or 12% pullback. You start to leg back into this trade after a big move. Steve Grasso. NVIDIA. Love the stock. I've loved it for years. But right now, you got to take profits. Bono and Ison. If you're concerned, I'm just here to remind you that six-month treasures are still paying you 5%. More than nice, nice trade there, um, Dan Nathan. With the debt ceiling, we're about to default. Um, just kidding. Hey, Microsoft into the print. I wouldn't be a buyer. All right, thank you all for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at five for more Fast. Meantime, do not go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. You seek the key. 
But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.